0: And if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. And if that causes you pause because you don't know where that is, the great news about going through the Minor Prophets is it is one page after the end of Habakkuk, which you might also not have known where it was. When all else fails... Directories in the front, just go ahead and find that page, but it is one of those crinkly spots in the minor prophets, and if we're honest, Zephaniah in our minds is probably one of the most minor of the minor prophets. It is short, it's only three chapters. We'll be in it this week and next week. Um It's familiar. It talks about judgment. It talks about a warning. Um, We have a difficult time applying it sometimes because it's directed so specifically at Judah in light of what's coming. Um, But I hope that after these next two weeks, you'll find Zephaniah as helpful as I do, as encouraging as I do, because it points us forward not only to what God is going to do among his people, but it points us forward about what God is doing in his world. It reminds us that God is holy and that he promises to deal with sin fully and finally in his timing. It calls God's people to take refuge in him. Zephaniah asks a very pointed question, and that is, where will you hide? In the day of trouble, whether that is trouble from man or whether that is trouble from the judgment of a holy, righteous God, where will you take your refuge? And so if you're not there already, find your way to Zephaniah chapter one. I'm gonna read the first few verses to set the stage for where we're going today and next week. Zephaniah chapter one, this is what God's word says. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, that is a serious and sweeping statement. The God who would talk about removing His creation from the face of the earth. And Lord, as we, again, wrestle with the idea of judgment and justice and the holiness of God, I pray that You would open our eyes. Lord, on our own, we don't like to look at sin, and we certainly don't like to look at our sin. But as we do that, open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful truths from your Word. Open our eyes so that we can have a glimpse of your holiness. And as you grow in perfection and magnificence in our mind, I pray that it shows us all the more clearly how vile our own sin is. Lord, bring us to the place of repentance so that we can be reminded of your kindness, your mercy, your forgiveness. Because Lord, you've promised to be a refuge for those who would seek shelter in you. You've provided forgiveness for the rebel. You've provided restoration for the ruined sinner. So Lord, show us these wonderful things from your word and then help us to walk in obedience. Soften our hearts to the place where by faith and the power of your spirit, we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So yesterday, Abby had a volleyball tournament in the valley, and uh, Brandy had to leave about two-thirds of the way through it, and it just so happened that right as she did, the kind of on-and-off sort of drizzle that had characterized the morning just turned into the full-fledged outright rainstorm, and uh, there was nowhere to hide and the, for the first couple of steps as I'm going up to get the car in the parking lot, which of course was nowhere near the gym. As I'm going up to get the car in the parking lot, the first few steps had some shade and some shelter under hallways and other buildings, and then there's just this wide open stretch where there was nothing uh, between me and the car. And no matter how fast I ran, which let's face it, wasn't that fast, and, and no matter how much I tried to dodge, there was nothing I could do. It. By the time I got to the car, I was absolutely soaked. And above all, I was thankful that I had an extra shirt, but more than that, I had wished that I had just kind of paid attention to the forecast. I knew that rain was a possibility. I just didn't bother to check. I wish that if I did that, if I had just simply checked on what was coming, that I would have had what was necessary to take shelter. Something like an umbrella would have been really handy, and it wasn't... That I was caught off guard. It was just I was ignorant about something that I should have known. And when it comes to the minor prophets, what we see is this coming of judgment over and over and over, and a people that seem to remain kind of willingly ignorant to what's coming. God has given them every reason, every warning, every kind of picture of what's going to happen. And it's like they refuse to respond. And we don't like to talk about judgment, and yet we seem to be doing a lot of that in the Minor Prophets. I understand that. But there is something not only sobering, but there's something good and God-honoring about being reminded that His character is upheld and even magnified in His judgment. We're not the first church to go through these things. I promise, it feels like it. But we're not the first church to go through these things. Back in the day, uh, there was a, a very famous and often translated hymn called Dies Irie. And one of the stanzas in that, coming right out of Zephaniah, is just, it says, Day of wrath, O day of mourning. See fulfilled the prophet's warning. Heaven and earth in ashes burning. Oh, what fear man's bosom rends. When from heaven the judge descends, on whose sentence all depend. Now, I'm not suggesting that we add that hymn to the rotation, Uh, but it's a reminder that there's something valuable in remembering that God will deal fully and finally and rightly with sin. Something sobering and helpful in remembering that God has dealt with sin in the past and that he'll deal with sin in the future. As we come to the book of Zephaniah, what we have basically is a capstone statement, kind of a summary of everything that's come before in the minor prophets. And so today what we're going to do is what we do every time we open up a new book, and that is we'll look first at kind of the the details of the prophet. We'll look at the context that the prophet finds himself in, the who and the when and the why. And then we're going to look at chapter 1, which gives us pictures of what is going to come. So let's open up Zephaniah, and first of all, start by asking the very important question of who, who wrote it, and that's coming from us straight out of verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. We're told that this prophetic book comes to a man named Zephaniah, and his name most likely means something along the lines of Yahweh hides, the Lord hides, and we'll come to why that's so critical at the end of today. And we're also told something about his family. We don't always get that. This time we're told about his family, and even that's a little bit unique. Sometimes we get the name of a father. Uh, Occasionally we'll get the name of a father and a grandfather, but we're given four generations here, not only his father and his grandfather, but his great-grandfather and his great-great-grandfather, and that likely has something to do uh, with that name there, Hezekiah. And a number of scholars and commentators who see this as being King Hezekiah. And you say, that sounds vaguely familiar, but remind me. Hezekiah was one of the few good kings in the southern kingdom. Uh, Remember, Judah did have a few good kings. Israel in the north, no good kings, wicked men, from bad to worse. But in the south, Judah had some good kings. They were in the family and the line of David, and every now and then you'd have a king uh, that would listen to the warnings, that would find the law, that would lead the people back toward worship, and Hezekiah was one of those. He listened uh, specifically to the warning of the prophet Micah, and that kind of led this revival. And so there's the possibility, and we can't be dogmatic. We certainly, although the timelines fit, we can't be dogmatic in saying that this is King Hezekiah. But it is interesting that the generational kind of genealogy highlights that. And that there's the potential that Zephaniah was related to the ruling family. And perhaps even had the ear of the king who was Josiah at this time. And that brings us to the when We have some very helpful information to establish when this book was written. If you open your notes in your bulletins, you'll see that prophetic timeline that we hand out at the beginning of every one of these books, so you can kind of visually slot this in. Zephaniah is one of the last prophets to write uh, before Jerusalem and Judah are overthrown by Babylon. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the rest of verse 1 says that uh, this was given to Zephaniah in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah talks about a king named Josiah. And to understand Josiah in his reign, you have to back up a little bit before him. There was a king named Manasseh. Manasseh ruled longer than any other king over the southern kingdom. For 55 years, Manasseh ruled. And he was not only bad, he was utterly horrible. He led the people into all kinds of idolatry and wickedness and rebellion. And for 55 years, the people were led astray from worship and entrenched in idolatry and rebellion his son Ammon wasn't really an improvement but he only reigned for two years but then in about 640 BC Josiah becomes king and he becomes king when he's only eight years old and he rules for about 30 years so we know that this is during that about 30 year reign of Josiah we can narrow it down a little bit beyond that If you were to read Zephaniah 2.13, God promises that he's going to stretch out his hand to the north and destroy Assyria and bring Nineveh to ruin. So he's saying that that will happen. So this happens sometime before 612 B.C. when Nineveh falls. And if you look at Josiah's reign, at eight years old, he becomes king. And then you read through Kings and Chronicles and you see that eight years into his reign, Josiah begins to seek the Lord. And then in the 12th year of his reign, he begins to dismantle the idols in the high places in Judah. And then in the 18th year of his reign, he begins to clean and repair the temple. And as the temple is being cleaned and restored, they actually find the book of the law. That is how lost Israel was. They had physically lost the law, it was in the shambles and the tatters and the ruin of the temple and what it had become. And they find the law and they read it to the king and he weeps. He mourns over what the land has become, and he institutes these these kind of sweeping reforms that sadly only last as long as he does, but as Zephaniah writes, there's no hint of that yet, so it's best to see this is early in his reign. So Zephaniah writes probably somewhere around 635 B.C., and again, while we can't be dogmatic, you read through Kings and Chronicles, and you say, uh, Josiah becomes a king at eight years old, raised in the wickedness of his father and the deplorable wickedness of his grandfather why is it that eight years into his rule it says he begins to seek the lord maybe it has something to do with a godly relative who was given a prophetic warning about what was coming just something that seems to potentially fit together and that brings us to the why why is it that zephaniah writes well we've already said that he writes to warn the people that is a common theme in the minor prophets he writes to warn and specifically to warn judah By this time, Israel is gone. Assyria has come and it's wiped out the northern kingdom. He writes to warn Judah about a similar judgment that's coming on them. But he does that in a way uh, that is both very familiar and very unique. For one thing, you have to understand that Zephaniah is at a turning point in your Bible. And there's nothing really physical to mark that. Uh, Between Malachi and Matthew, most of us either have some introductory material or at the very least a blank page that says New Testament that kind of breaks that up. There's there's a very important break that happens here in Zephaniah that we don't see unless we kind of understand the chronology of what's happening. Remember, you have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And in 722, Assyria comes in and wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel. And in 586, Babylon comes in and wipes out the southern kingdom of Judah. Everything Zephaniah and before is written prior to Babylon coming in and exiling Judah. Zephaniah is the last of the pre-exilic, the pre-Babylonian exile prophets in your Bible. Now he writes earlier than Habakkuk, but he's placed here in your Bible as kind of the capstone and the summary for everything that's come before. The way that Zephaniah writes, the words that he uses, the terms that he uses, the phrases that he uses are going to sound very, very familiar, and it's because he is the summary of all eight of the minor prophets that have come before him, every one of them looking forward to a judgment that's coming, some of them pointing to a judgment on Edom or Nineveh, some of them pointing to a judgment on Israel, some of them pointing to the judgment on Judah, but before Zephaniah, and including Zephaniah, everything is looking forward to a judgment that is coming on God's people that will see them removed from the land, but he also does that in a way that is very unique. Zephaniah talks about the day of the Lord, and you say, that's not unique. We've seen the day of the Lord introduced in the minor prophets, but Zephaniah has a bigger emphasis on the day of the Lord than any minor prophet that's come before him, and he helps us understand what that means in a way that's different, and it's really helpful. Uh, The day of the Lord is a time of revelation, basically. It is God telling mankind what he is like. The day of the Lord exposes most clearly the nature and the power and the holiness of God. The day of the Lord sees God deal with sin. It deals with the sins of his people, and it deals with the sins of the whole world. It's the time of refining. God talks about the day of the Lord as being a, a period of purification of dismantling the rebellion of his people bringing them to repentance and restoration it talks about the restoration of god's people israel it talks about them uh having an exalted place among the nations and so the day of the lord is kind of this sweeping term that sees god bring the fullness of his plans into human history And Zephaniah is going to further that understanding to a greater degree than any of the minor prophets up to this point. And all that understanding is really important because as we open the page to chapter 1, there's a very familiar promise. Judgment is coming. And you say, that's great. I could probably write the rest of the sermon. You probably could. But Zephaniah does it in a way that's very unique. He gives three pictures of this judgment that's coming. And so we're going to move from the prophet and his kind of immediate social context to the pictures that he gives that show the power and the scope and the unique wrath that is going to be poured out. And the first picture that he uses is that of a flood. Look at verses two and three. He says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And you say, I was paying attention, and I didn't see the word flood anywhere in there. And that's true. You didn't. But the language that he uses there comes from passages that should have been very, very familiar to the people. Likely wasn't, since they had lost the law altogether. But if you were to read out of the book of Genesis, you'd see the same kind of sweeping judgmental language used in Genesis 6 and 7. By the time you come to Genesis 6, uh, God describes the sorry state of mankind is that every thought on his heart was only on evil continually. That what God had called man to be was so corrupt and so perverted that it's like sin was universal and absolute and the state of god's creation grieves him and so he says i'm going to do something about it because sin is so pervasive i am going to judge the whole of the earth and of course we know the story he tells noah build the boat and his family is saved But in Genesis 6, verse 7, God says, I will blot out man that I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds from the heavens. In Genesis 7, 4, God says, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And So you read that, and it's that same language that Zephaniah picks up on. And and it's so important to get, because what he's saying is that this day of the Lord as he opens the chapter, is not something that is just pointed in its scope. The day of the Lord does not only deal with one people at one place at one time. The day of the Lord is this sweeping judgment of God against sin. The corruption of sin is pictured as being kind of undone what we read from in Peter this morning. He picks up on that idea. He says that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief. He talks about the heavens and the earth passing away with a roar. He talks about the earth being exposed and undone. And that universal component of the day of the Lord doesn't start in the epistles. It's grounded in our understanding of the minor prophets. But that's not the only part of the day of the Lord. Look at what he goes on to say in verses 4 through 6. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. There's a universal component to the day of the Lord, but there's also a focused aspect of the day of the Lord where God deals with the sins of humanity, but where God also specifically deals with the sins of his people. Most pointedly, he says he's going to deal with their idolatry. See, Israel was continuing, and Judah, in this case, is continuing in kind of this half-hearted external worship. He says they swear by the Lord... And yet they swear by Milcom or Moloch or their king, their kind of star God king. In other words, the people were content to do the feasts and the sacrifices and and they would kind of give lip service to this worship of Yahweh at the very same time that they were clinging to their idolatry. And God does not let you have it both ways. God does not share his worship. God does not share his glory with anyone. And God's people need to be purged of their idolatry. And to do that, he's going to send judgment on them like a flood. And so right away, in Zephaniah, we see that dual aspect of the day of the Lord. The purging of the sins of his people and the purging of his sins of the whole earth. There's this stain of sin, this corrupting nature of sin, that like a flood, he is going to completely wash away. Then we come to the second picture, and the second picture is one of sacrifice. It's a very unique way of presenting the judgment. Look at verse 7. He says, Be silent before the Lord God. You say that does sound kind of familiar. We just got that from Habakkuk, where Habakkuk says, All of the idols are useless, they have no life, they can give you no wisdom. But the Lord is on his throne in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He says, Keep silent before the Lord. This Instance because that holy and enthroned God is about to act in judgment. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near, and the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Now that's a little bit backwards from what we would expect. Normally, people prepare a sacrifice for the Lord. Those consecrated guests, those who have prepared themselves to enter into this time of worship and sacrifice, uh, they cleanse, they prepare, and then they bring their gifts to the Lord. That's not what God is saying here. The Lord says, On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's son and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house." with violence and fraud. As you go on to read, what becomes really clear is that the Lord is preparing to sacrifice His own people. That like a sacrifice is consumed in the flames of the altar, His people are going to be consumed in the flames of judgment. That familiar image that the people understood, sacrifice. Feasts, festivals built into their national DNA is turned on its head as God now says he is calling for the lives of his people. And some of the images are a little bit tough to decide what they mean. Things like the foreign attire and the leaping over thresholds. You get about as many opinions as there are commentaries. But the heart of it all is the same. The people were no different. The people were no different than the nations around them. They looked the same. They talked the same, they dressed the same, they worshiped the same gods. Israel, who was called to be unique, different, set apart among every nation on earth, had become just like her neighbors. And so God says, I am going to treat you exactly like the sinful, corrupt people that were in the land before you, and that is I will expel you. And you put that together, and it's a really jarring picture. It is not the people consecrating themselves and coming to their senses and bringing God a right sacrifice. It's not people being prepared to bring gifts to the Lord. It's not the honored guests. It's not the kings and the royal family who are leading these people in worship. It's God calling the people as He prepares them to be the sacrifice. Those consecrated guests that are prepared to witness this, that's Babylon that's going to come in and make an utter ruin of Jerusalem and Judah. That brings us to the last picture, and that's the picture of war. Verse 14, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. Like a gathering storm, like lightning that is ready to strike. The day of the Lord is coming, and there's mighty men, warriors Soldiers, and they're ready to cry aloud. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Not only a picture of war, but again, hopefully you see that there's something very familiar about the way that he writes that. Joel chapter 2, when we went through that, verses 1 and 2, Joel says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, of clouds and thick darkness. In Amos chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is a day of darkness and not light. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light gloom with no brightness in it? In other words, uh, Zephaniah is picking up and he's describing the day of the Lord exactly in some of the same words as the way the other minor prophets have. That's why I said he's kind of a capstone summary statement. There's some things in here that aren't original but are very, very familiar when we're talking about the day of the Lord. And when we put this together, it's fascinating because you see that Amos writes about the day of the Lord, and he points to Israel, the northern kingdom, and he says, this day of the Lord' judgment is coming. Joel, Zephaniah, they write to Judah in the southern kingdom. They point to it, and they say, this day of the Lord, this judgment is coming. And we know that in 722, well after Amos writes, that day of the Lord' judgment comes. And we know that in 586, after Zephaniah writes, that day of the Lord, uh, that judgment comes. And yet Peter can write centuries later and say that day of the lord judgment is still coming and again we're reminded we're we're being made to see that this unfolding day of the lord has national implications for israel it has pointed applications and it also has universal expectations for mankind look at verse 17 I will bring distress on mankind so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, their flesh like dung. It's a graphic picture of death, especially wartime death. You, you can visualize those severe wounds from swords, from spears, and fallen in battle, men who just kind of lie broken and torn open in the dust. And he says, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them In the day of the wrath of the lord the idea that as god steps back not only is judah going to fall under this judgment but as he steps back everyone will and there's nowhere to hide the battlements the fortifications the strong cities don't save you from the lord's judgment your money your wealth your possessions your influence can't influence the lord away from judgment says in the fire of his jealousy all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth and so hopefully again you see the chapter open and close in the same way it opens broadly talking about the flood of judgment that's coming on everything it closes broadly talking about this sudden end of judgment that is coming on all mankind and in the middle it's pointed toward judah specifically The idea that God will deal with sin, that God will deal with the sins of his people, and that he will deal with the sins of the nations. And what's coming is a preview of that judgment. When Israel falls in the north in 722, it is a reminder that the day of the Lord is coming. When Judah falls in 586, it is a reminder that the day of the Lord is coming. As nations fall, as judgment comes, it is a reminder that the world is broken, that sin is corrupting, and that God will, at one point, fully and finally deal with sin. And I want to conclude this by turning to the first few verses of chapter 2. Because in the first few verses of chapter 2, there's this warning and this plea. And behind those first three verses is this question, and that is where will you hide? remember zephaniah means yahweh hides and you can take that two ways if you are sinful wicked and rebellious then the overwhelming evidence from the prophets and indeed the whole bible is that yahweh hides his face from you and yet for those who recognize their sin and humble themselves yahweh becomes a hiding place a refuge for his people And so Zephaniah writes in chapter 2, verse 1, "'Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, "'before the decree takes effect. "'Before this happens, come together. "'Before the day passes away like chaff, "'before there comes upon you "'the burning anger of the Lord, "'before there comes upon you "'the day of the anger of the Lord. "'Seek the Lord. "'All you humble in the land "'who do His just commands, "'seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the lord he says before this happens come together and recognize it repent of your sins and at this point in their history the best he can say is perhaps you'll be hidden in that day you might survive there was no guarantee that they would when babylon comes in the wicked and the righteous are consumed Babylon puts to death the just and the unjust. They exile the just and the unjust. But we know that on a much more eternal scale, the Lord is a refuge to his people. And that even if the righteous perish during the judgment of Judah, that their eternal judgment is set aside and that they find safety and refuge in God. everyone seeks shelter in something. None of us like to be uncomfortable. None of us like to face pain. Certainly none of us like to anticipate judgment. And each and every one of us will take shelter in something. You find security in something. Some of you find security in your savings, in your 401k. Some of you find security in your relationships, in your marriage, in your friendships, Some of you find security in your reputation. Some of you find security in your position at work. Some of you find security in your good works and the idea that somehow you are a better person than at least most people. And the tragedy is that all of those things that most of the world finds security in uh, evaporate under the judgment of a holy God that wealth doesn't save you, that fortifications and cities don't save you, that influence doesn't save you, relationships don't save you, and certainly your own goodness won't save you. And yet we're called to take refuge in the God of our salvation who covers us, who covers us with the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, who clothes us with His righteousness, calls us to find shelter in him that has eternal value a few things for us to think about as we prepare our hearts for communion as we prepare to face the rest of this week first of all we need to be reminded that divided worship isn't worship it's easy to look at Israel and say, of course, that wasn't worship. How could you worship the stars? How could you worship idols and worship God at the same time? And yet, how many of us come here on any given Sunday with a heart that is divided, to say the least? How many of us worship while we are considering something that is certainly not God? God doesn't share his glory. And God will refine and purify the worship of his people. Second, imitating the world isn't harmless. Israel got to the point where they looked just like their neighbors. They would do the religious thing. They would celebrate the feasts and the festivals. They would bring the sacrifices when God told them to, but at the very same time, they talked like the nations. They dressed like the nations. They brought in uh, the, the idols of the nations. And for the vast majority of their existence, they looked just like the world around them. I think it's valuable for you and I to ask who we look like, not just on Sunday. You all look very nice today. And we're all very well behaved on Sunday. But who do we look like for the rest of our week? Who do we look like in our classrooms, in our boardrooms, and in our cubicles? Who do we look like on the sports field, in our neighborhoods? Who do we look like online? As a church, do we really look any different than the world around us? And if we don't look any different than the world around us, do we really expect the world around us to believe that there's anything different about the God that we claim to worship? finally, the end is more than just something to argue about. Eschatology, the study of the end times, usually becomes one of two things. It is either something you avoid like the plague because it is too hard, too scary, too confusing, and God will work it all out in the end, or it becomes, has a tendency to become kind of your pet theology by which you determine whether everybody else is faithful or not. At eschatology, the study of the end is incredibly valuable. It takes up a huge portion of your Bible. The idea that God tells his people what is to come. In 2 Peter 3, where we started reading this morning, Peter says that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief, and the heavens are going to pass away, and the heavenly bodies are going to be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be utterly exposed found out, burned up. But then Peter says this in 2 Peter 3, verse 11. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, because this is coming, what sort of people ought you to be? Because you know the end, what are you supposed to be right now? What sort of people are you to be? in holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. We are supposed to be holy, godly, patient, and peaceful. Now I could probably just meditate on that for the rest of the week in light of what's coming and have plenty to work on. But you and I have the wonderful opportunity to celebrate communion together. To think through that covering grace of God. So I'm going to pray and we'll wrap this up and then I'll give you some instructions as we prepare to go on to what's next. Lord, thank you for the book of Zephaniah, a book that is largely overlooked uh, that we confess we are not as familiar with as we probably ought to be but lord another reminder that you are holy and you're sovereign and you're just and lord you're so merciful that you warn people about the judgment that's to come so that they might find an escape a refuge in you and lord we confess that we're a people that are quick to take our refuge in anything but you so often We seek our own strength, our own goodness, our own works. Lord, dismantle all of those things that we find security in that are not grounded and rooted in you. And Lord, as we take our shelter in you, help us to be a people that wait patiently for your coming, a people that wait hopefully for your coming, and a people who live in holiness as we anticipate the return of the King. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.